Radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill. Good evening and welcome to the local edition news and information keeping you connected. I'm your host, Jason Dole, but not for long. It's the first Tuesday of the month. And that's when we have the Kingfisher Project. I'll be handing things over to Bill Williams in just a moment. This is part two of his interview with Dick Morey. The first part of this interview aired uh, at the beginning of December. If you missed that, you can find it online at WJFFradio.org. Sign up for the Local Edition podcast. Never miss any episode of the Local Edition. So we're going to hear Bill's introduction of Dick again, and then we'll pick up the interview where we left off last month. Welcome to the Kingfisher Project, information and awareness about the heroin and opiate epidemic. I'm Julie Pazal. The Kingfisher Project began in memory of my daughter, Rebecca Jean Pazal, who was shot and killed due to her heroin addiction. At her memorial service, her former teacher, Mr. Okazalik, read an essay she wrote. It was about a bird, an injured kingfisher bird that she found and rescued when everyone else had given up on the bird. In that spirit, our community came together and formed the Kingfisher Project. Since 2014, we have been raising awareness about the drug and opiate crisis in our listening area and around the country, right here on Radio Catskill. Here is Bill Williams. Thanks, Julie. Substance abuse is happening next door in Gillette, Wyoming. That's where our guest Dick Morey lives. My guest is Dick Morey, a high school classmate and friend for over 60 years. Dick grew up in Connecticut, found his way to Wyoming, and has created a successful career as an entrepreneur in the energy field. A recent essay about Dick cites that, quote, over the last 30 or more years, he has fostered more than 20 children. He lives in a community that has both extreme wealth and extreme poverty, and many of his kids suffer from abuse, addiction, or both. One of his gifts as a parent to these children was understanding them as individual human beings. His empathy was accompanied by action. He provided structure, support, and love. As he modestly says, most have made it. Welcome, Dick. I'm so proud to call you my friend and have you on this show. Thanks, Bill. Give us maybe a few more examples of where some of these kids are now. We keep calling them kids, but some of them are in their, their, their what, their 40s, their 50s? Oh, one of them is 50. The one I just talked to is 55. Uh, and and he, uh, uh, who went through a lot of challenges. But, you know, he's got a six-year-old. He's got a very happy marriage. He's got a got a really good job working here. Makes a lot of money. She makes a lot of money. They're, they're the classic example of why it was worth the effort. Um, uh, one of them owns some oil wells. And uh, they're, even during the bad times, I'd say, well, we got to shut the wells. And he said, oh, I'll go out and wash them. I said, I can't pay you. And he'd say, oh, yeah, I'll just go wash them. I mean, he's just an amazing guy. And he works for a great big oil company. And honest to God, when we're my business partner or my, my friends or whatever, when we're out, he'll go come by and pay the bill. I mean, he's just an extraordinary guy. He's raised two daughters himself. He's been through a couple of marriages. <laughs> But he, he raised two of his daughters himself. There'd be snowing, it'd be three feet of snow out there, and he'd drive all the way to Buffalo, Wyoming, which is 68 miles, and pick up his daughter and bring her home for the weekend, no matter what. And he'd always include me and his family stuff. So I'm incredibly close to his daughters. They're two great gals. One of them just gave us a great, uh, I got a great grandson out of the deal. So I've been very lucky. 
couple of them work at the uh, work at the mines. A couple of them work in the oil field, run big pipeline systems, and, and we we have a pipeline system that one of them will probably come over and run. I mean, it's I'm very lucky of the life I've lived, and and they're lucky, and they appreciate what they got. They do. I would. I didn't have to do this for them. So they're they're all very appreciative. And we've stayed very close all these years. It's funny. You wouldn't. I never planned all that, but but you know, six or eight of them have stayed incredibly close friends. They consider me dad, and I feel very lucky to have that situation. So then, what's the age range, roughly? I'm I'm hearing something from twenty six to fifty five. I'm hearing about a thirty yeah. year thirty year age range. Yeah, that's about that's it. And I've got some of the forties and some of the thirties. I mean, they're just kind of scattered all through that that range. And and it's funny with the last one. Um, he reminds me I was about almost seventy, sixty eight, something like that. And, and I'd worked with him, and he'd really kind of cleaned up his act and doing very well. And he said, uh, "I I know it's going to be an imposition, but I need to come live at your in your spare bedroom and bath." He said, "I just got to do it, and I got to bring my wife." I said, Daniel, I'm not going to raise any more kids. I'm just done. And he said, I will be no trouble. Give me one week. Well, he was there about five years. <laughs> but he, but he, but he went down to college. He really grew up and he's, and he's really adopted. I'm a middle class guy. It's just who I am. And, and a lot of them have adopted my value system. And that was what I hoped they would get just as I adopted my mother and father's value system, um, which was a very solid middle class, hardworking, Take care of your family, be a good citizen. The, the three rules of life, and so that's what I tried to pass on. It seems to me that in, in your work counseling people, you're there's certainly more than one path up the mountain. Yeah, and and I always felt guilty after seminary because my church helped me send through, my parents helped me, and and I was in my mid twenties at the time, and I loved it. I was up there in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And just loved it. It was a great time in my life. But I realized I wasn't called. Uh, many are called, but few are chosen. Um, and so I, I decided that wasn't my path. And I felt guilty about that for a number of years because here I used these resources up and not really benefited anything. So I've always felt that was kind of my pay, pay it forward deal. Um, and so when I started working, this was the path I had chosen. It was much better for me than being a minister. I wasn't going to be. I, I have friends who are ministers and they're great. That's terrific. I wasn't going to be a good minister. I like business too much. I like, uh, 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 I like trade. I like doing, doing deals all the time. And that's made me much happier. And then I, it turned out I was pretty good with kids and pretty good with, with middle-aged cute people. Uh, I think the other thing you're pretty good at dealing with them is setting boundaries and making bargains. You told me the story about the guy the other day. You told me the story about a guy who wanted a horse. You share that with us. <laughs> I, I one of my favorite of the kids that I worked with, um, and I can't remember how old he was. I think he was about fifteen, but he was doing drugs and he was he was going to school and everything was going wrong with his life and and really like well good. But he was the seventh of eight kids. He was hyperactive. He was ADD. All, all those kind of things, but I didn't know all that. But but he would he would come by the house and and uh, Valerie, who was the the first long term relationship of mine, and he got along really well. So he would come over and spend time. And but I I couldn't get through to him. And and he was doing drugs. I knew, and that really infuriated me. And so one day I blew up and said, "What the hell do you want?" 
And he said, uh, I want a horse. And I remember thinking, being speechless, which is rare for me. And so I had a, I've got a cousin who owns a, a big ranch south of Gillette, about 15 miles. So I drove down there and I, and he's a, he's a hell of a team roper. And this kid wanted to be a team roper, which is when you, two guys run out of the chute and one ropes the head and one ropes the feet. Um, and so I said to him, how much you got to charge me for a good roping pony for this kid? And so, and whenever it was, so I, I, I buy this horse and I had another friend about three miles south of town who owned a, a kind of a barn and a, and a place I could keep. The, so I paid him so much a month to let me keep the horse there. And, uh, and then I bought two calves from another ranch, a buddy of mine, who was also on the, on the, on the bank board with me. So I, I, I bring the kid down there. And I said to him, I won't see an animal suffer. So here's the deal. Um, if you really want this horse, you, you commit to it right now. And if you want these two calves, you can practice with them. You can rope with them. But I said, if I come out here, I said, I'm just going to show up once in a while. This is your place. Um, if I show up and there's, there's horse shit all over the place and there's the animals being fed and watered properly. I said, there's not a problem. I'm going to take my 33rd. I'm going to drop that horse. And I'm going to bury it, which I wasn't going to do, but I was, I was for effect. And I said, I'm going to sell those two calves. And boy, his eyes got huge. He didn't say a word. By God, you could eat off that floor. That kid completely changed. He quit the drugs. He quit everything. He, he, uh, he just got addicted to this and he became the champion roper in the state of Wyoming when he was a high school senior. I mean, and he's a great friend to this day. He's 50. He's got a great daughter. The, the tail end of the story, when he was, uh, oh, 15 years ago, we were at lunch and his wife cooked a nice big dinner. I was there with, and he had just had a new baby, a new daughter. And I said, Kyle, you, is this, how many, you got, have any more kids? He said, I don't want her ever to feel unwanted. So no, I'm not having any more kids. He'd spent his whole life being unwanted. Wow. So that's that's the satisfaction of, of getting to help. It's a really a cool feeling. I'm sure. I mean, it's, it's got to be. Um, yeah, I'm pretty lucky. Do you get within the town for forget the kids, but within the town, do you is there any recognition of what you've done or what you're able to do? It, it's certainly respected by my friends. I, it's not something I particularly care to air publicly that I, I don't need any pat on the backs. I, I, and I was told the kids, I, you don't owe me anything. You owe me to be a good citizen other than that. And you have to, to have a good life, as good a life as you could make. Other than that, you owe me nothing. And that's how I feel. I, it's, if I had five or six kids of my own, that's what I would have done with them. So I, but I didn't. And so I ended up with, and I do, I wasn't full time with these kids. I just spent a lot of time, maybe five or six of them I spent a lot of time with, but the others, it was a, it was, uh, all they needed was a, was a helping hand and they were ready to move on in life. And that's great. Do you think part of it was the fact that you were able to recognize them and recognize them for who they, for who they were, who they are, uh, was enough, enough to give them a sense of security that, and trust in themselves to succeed in their recovery. I, I really think so. I think the self-worth is so key in recovery. It isn't for every kid, but the majority of those kids were, were unwanted uh, in one form or another. 
this is the one thing they all shared. And, and uh, I explained to them that they were worthwhile and that they, they could be successful in life and that they were worth something. So that was kind of the battle for them to get over the first hump. Then the addiction problem was another round of problems. But if you hadn't solved that first problem, I don't think you were going to make success. Now, were they all successes? No. I've had one or two failures, but, but that's how it goes. Uh, um, I never beat myself up. I, you, I don't second guess myself. I just do the best I can. Very human. Got plenty of faults myself. So you, you just kind of uh, do your best. And, and, and I got better at it over time. It's no different than business. I mean, I got smarter in business. Like, oh, you can't, don't do, don't keep running into the stone wall. Walk around the damn wall. Um, and so it's safely you do with the kids. This isn't working. You don't throw a fit. Don't, don't, that isn't making any, any effect on them. You got to do something that they understand. So uh, that was a, it was a process for me. Why was I ever the smartest kid in the class? No. So I had to, had to kind of learn by, by degrees. Well, you weren't the dumbest kid in the class either. And, <laughs> and as, as you know, the school we went to divided people. When, when we got our grades, we were divided what were called quintiles. So you were placed in either the first, fifth of the class, the second, fifth, the third, the fourth, or the fifth. And a good uh, classmate of ours, Dusty Sandmeyer, who was a helicopter pilot and a hero in Vietnam, I remember him coming back and saying at some point, you know, just because you were in the fifth quintile in high school doesn't mean you're in the fifth quintile of life. <laughs> it's true. But, you know, for me, it was very humbling. To, it was a pretty smart school. And I was a pretty average kid, to be honest. And so for me, it was a, it was a scramble the whole, the whole years we were there. And I was lucky to be there. I knew it. But, but the reality is it really prepared me for life. I, I spend my life on Zoom calls probably three times a week. And it's not rare that I'm the lowest IQ. You know, my IQ is probably 120. Most of the guys I deal with are 140, 150 ones. Very high, very smart guys. But the one thing I love about them, they all take orders. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I'm the slowest guy on the phone. And, and, and not because I'm the smartest, but just because I, I like to be the leader. I like to move things ahead. And they, they, they're usually looking for somebody. You know, everybody grabs and does what they do well. That's why I like dealing with groups. That's why I hired cute counselors. That's why I are good lawyers. I would I would interview the rehabs before I'd send them to them. I'd re, I interviewed the drug court guys, even the jails. I, you know, I'd go in and talk to the sheriff. I'd say, well, here's this who this kid is. If you cause him problems, I said, you're going to be very, very sorry. I, I, I'm a pretty harsh guy as far as um, what's right or wrong. I had an older brother who got bullied because he was, he was uh, uh, different than a lot of other people. And so it drove me crazy as a kid. I can't stand bullies to this day. So anybody who bullies is, is not going to be happy in my world, period. Even at 77. <laughs> You're listening to The Kingfisher Project. We're going to take a quick break and be back with more from our guest. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Hey, it's Francis Lamb. This week on our show, we spend an hour with Harold McGee, the author who wrote about the science of food and changed how generations of us cook and eat because of it. He's got a new book about the science of smell and what it can teach us about our lives. It's coming up on The Splendid Table. Mm-hmm. 
The Splendid Table, Sunday morning at 11 on Radio Catskill. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, independent grassroots global news. Our reporting includes breaking daily news headlines and in-depth interviews with people on the front lines of the world's most pressing issues. People speaking for themselves, providing unique and sometimes provocative perspectives on global events. Democracy Now!, weekdays at noon, right here on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to the Kingfisher Project on the Local Edition. I'm Bill Williams, and my guest is Dick Morey, a high school classmate. Over the last 30 or more years, he has fostered more than 20 children, and many suffer from abuse, addiction, or both. If somebody came to you now with a kid or a kid came to you now and said, I've got a problem, I need your help, would you consider it? Yes. Would I take them in? No. I, I, I just am too old, Bill. Um, physically, I have some, some issues, and... Uh, but but I would I, I'd go back to my meeting at the uh, at the Prime Rib or the or Perkins or some good restaurant. I'd go back to the counseling. I'd steer them to the right course. Would I pay for them to go to counseling? Yes. Would I pay for them to go to college? I probably would. Um, so those kind of things I I would still do. But I I don't have the the stamina. I had enormous energy in the old days. Oh my God, there were lots of hundred hour weeks and hundred and twenty hour weeks. That was just how I lived. But I'm probably paying the price for that today. So I have to pace myself, and I, I've never done that before. When you say pace yourself, what do you do and what don't you do? Well, I still like to work. I, I know I'm usually working on four or five pretty good-sized projects because that's what I like. And then we organize them, and, and uh, sometimes they involve lawyers, sometimes they involve finance people, sometimes banks, sometimes uh, all sorts of people, and sometimes just really smart people. And so I spend a lot of time doing that, but I'll often schedule almost nothing for the, for the morning because some mornings are better than others. And so I, uh, yeah, I'll come to work in the morning if I feel well. If I don't, I don't, but I, I always come in every afternoon and work for three or four hours. And sometimes I can work for six, but other times I just read, read or just enjoy life. I have a pretty good life. Well, not only do you have a good life, but You've led a lot of people to a good life. Yeah, but to whom much is given, much is expected. Um, I always felt an obligation because I had been given so much. Trust me, I was a kind of a screw-up as a kid. My dad bailed me out a couple of times on some pretty uh, not good stuff, and he would never say a word. He'd just say, well, boys will be boys. Well, I was a boy. Um, and he bailed out my brother, and he bailed out my sisters. I mean, he was an extra, and he wouldn't say much, but he was always behind you. And, and, you know, I went through tough times economically. I took a gigantic sample about 30 years ago. I lost everything uh, 35 years ago. And uh, I remember calling my dad, oh, my God, I'm blown it, Dad. I've lost all the equipment. I've lost everything. And he said, you still got your brain. You're the, one of the smartest guys I know. You're going to bounce back and come way back stronger. He said, that's probably the best thing in the world, but who have lost that. I mean, not every father would say that. <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting. Well, you, you know, you talk about a genetic, genetics in terms of addiction. There's also probably genetics in terms of the kind of spirit and the uh, sensitivity and the common sense that you're able to employ or have been able to employ, employ for so long. Pretty, pretty lucky on the Jude Cole front. My mother was a very smart woman. And, and uh, 
my father was considered because he was so well read. My father read ten thousand books, and he was he was very intellectual. My mother was not intellectual; she was much more like me. And we were certainly didn't have the IQ of my brother, the brilliant engineer, or my father, the who should have gone to the Naval Academy. But anyway, sometimes people are smart and crafty and, and know how to get stuff done, and other people are very smart in school. We've seen it with our schoolmates. Some of them are, you know, brilliant people, and they can barely get out of their way, and others are brilliant people who've made huge strides in life. There's no predicting on that front. No, there's not. When you first started working with kids, when you first started counseling, you must have had to go farther afield than, than Yes and, and just local Gillette in order to get the kind of help that people needed. You're exactly right, Bill. I was really lucky in that I had, uh, um, um, I, <laughs> I always loved poker, one of my, one of my weaknesses. And so we always had these poker games and probably half the players were judges and lawyers. And, and so I, we became good friends over the years. Um, and I, so I would, I was always willing to call them. So I would call up three judges in, in particular and I'd say, what the hell am I going to do about this kid? I, he, he's, it's not going to work. And they'd say, Oh, call so-and-so. They, you know, they were incredibly good resources. Uh, they call, Hey, there's this gal up in Sheridan. They have this, this, this is really good. See if you can get to get him into there. So I'd call up and, and, uh, and, and we'd negotiate a fee, and, and I'd send him a check, and then that kid would go up there. Sometimes it was six weeks, sometimes it was six months. It just depended on the kid and how much progress they made. But I found these various resources. They were way above my pay grade. I I, uh, I just I remember one of them who was really a neat kid. He's, he's a very successful guy today. He's a huge business and, and a neat dad and all those kind of things. Just a wonderful kid. Uh, but he was very much addicted to meth. And um, I, I put him in the up in Sheridan, and we'd go up every week. There was a family thing. So me and, and a, a couple of his friends would go up, and we'd go up there for this family weekend. And it was, it was very fun and very interesting and very beneficial for everybody, including the, the, the kids who might have liked him, because they also were drug users. So it was a, I, I had a method to my madness on that, and that worked out really well. But he... She came to me after six weeks. She said, boy, this is the worst addict I, we've dealt with here in my 20 years. I said, oh, my God, don't tell me that. I mean, that's, I said, what, what do you want me to do? She said, you got to get your checkbook out. He's got to stay. He said, he, he was in jail. I got it out of jail. He was on a two-year uh, jail thing in, in a place called Sundance, Wyoming. And uh, I'd make, cut a deal with the judge. I said, well, could I send him to rehab and get day for day on his time in jail? And the judge said yes. So that worked out really well. But, but he had to stay for a couple of more tours. And when he got out, uh, he went back and did meth, believe it or not. But but then he came to me and he said, I'm never going to do this again. I knew better. I just had to have it that one last time. He's never done it again. Doesn't drink, doesn't take drugs. And moved up to Montana. It's been phenomenally successful. So that, And he was always driven. Oh, he was—he had more drive than I had. <laughs> he runs about six huge trucks up there, and just—he's a goer. We haven't mentioned—we haven't mentioned AA. You know, it's interesting. Uh, some of them have gone to NA. Uh, some have gone to AA. I, I at eighty—I took my mother to dry out at eighty-three, uh, and it was not well graded by any of my family or my mother. I might add. 
And everyone said, you can't cure her. She doesn't want to stop drinking. I said, I don't care. She's going to rehab. And there's kind of a certain amount of jerk quotient to me, to be honest. I can be a, a little pain in the ass. Um, and I said, nope, I'm flying back to Connecticut, and I'm putting her in rehab. So there's a neat place called Silver Hill in New Canaan, Connecticut. And I just uh, I said, Mom, you're going to love this place because it's really nice women. It's all alcoholics. You'll fit right in. You're the worst drunk I know, and you'll just have a wonderful day. And she didn't speak to me for about six months, but she dried out. And she didn't like AA, but her sister had, was very successful in AA in New York, in New York City. And so she would go, but she'd put up with it. And and so I, she said, I don't think AA helps me, but they say I have to do it, so I do it. So she'd get an hour a week, I think is all she did. And I think it helped her more than she knew it did. With my kids, uh, men, women, um, I, I would pitch it. and They did NA. And I think it works for some and not for others. I think AA works for some and not for others. And you have to respect that. Um, for them, the, the kids who didn't like it had their complaints that it was the same old story time after time. I said, well, that's kind of the nature of addiction. But but it did work for some. No, I, I'm a great believer in AA. And, and my aunt, you know, she was a recovered alcoholic at 58. And way she lives in, on, all around the east side in, in New York. And I'd be at her place, and, and she was a great lady. And she, we'd get a call. We were all going to go out for dinner. And uh, uh, I'd flown in with this gal, and I did a lot of traveling. And so, and I, she was my favorite aunt. She was a really cool lady. And she'd get a call. It'd be, you know, 7 o'clock at night. It'd be some somebody drunk. And she'd say, I'm so sorry. I can't go to dinner with you guys. So she would go take whoever the drunk was. She was going to go meet him and deal with it and get him through the night. And she did that time after time after time and never took a never took a didn't care when anybody appreciated it or not she said it's what saved my life i'm going to save somebody else if i can so I, I i like aa it didn't necessarily fit for our family i think it's again it's one size doesn't fit all did you guys have luck good luck with aa no no william william resisted it and he resisted what he resisted was the let me call it the religious component the spiritual gotcha. component Gotcha. And that was an issue for my kids, too. You know, I have a very, very strong faith, which I didn't go into on this program. Because I, you know, I don't know if that's important or not, but I, had an, I have enormous faith. But a lot of my kids don't. And, and so I would talk to them, and they would ask me about it. If they asked, I told them. If they didn't ask, I would discuss it, but for 10 seconds. And, and some of them end up going to church with me, and some of them, uh, you know, religion has been very helpful. It, it's it's a wonderful tool, a wonderful crutch for me, and it's a wonderful crutch for a lot of people. It isn't for everybody, and I totally. My brother's an agnostic. My father's an agnostic, and and uh, they got through life. Funny story. Quickly, my father called me up. Uh, he was eighty five, I think, and and you know had struggles, but he's a great guy. Called me up. And he said, "You win." I said, "What does that mean?" He said, "I'm back going to church." I said, well, I didn't win. That was just how I see the world. Uh, you know, you're entitled to see it how you see it. Nope, I, you were right. And he said, I, it's given me enormous peace and comfort. And I, and you used to say, you know, you don't have to believe. But he, but he, but he, he, I used to say, to him, but you're the real risk taker. I mean, suppose you're going to hell. I know I'm going to heaven. Even if I'm wrong, we're both just dying. Why would you take that? It's a bad end of the bat. I'm an old poker player. 
Now, I don't do it because it's, it saves your soul. I do it because I have this wonderful faith. But I don't preach it much to other people because if they're interested, they'll ask. If they're not, that's okay. Well, I guess I just did indeed ask you without knowing it. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and it's not like I, I'm pitching to anybody. I just know that it's brought me great comfort. If it doesn't bring somebody else comfort, don't use it. I mean, it's it's like I have friends who think golf's the most wonderful thing that ever happened. I can't stand golf. It doesn't make me a bad guy. I just don't, don't play golf. Well, you've done enough other fine stuff. Dick, we've we've run out of time, and I'm not quite sure what to call you other than let our listeners know you've been listening to me talk to Dick Morey from Gillette, Wyoming, and an entrepreneur, but more important, someone who has helped many, many young people discover themselves, discover their true value, and discover something they can do with their lives that they never imagined. Dick, thank you so much for being our guest. And Thanks, Ben. I really enjoyed it. I'm Bill Williams. This is the Kingfisher Project. Thank you all for listening to Radio Cat Skills. That's going to do it for the local edition tonight. Kingfisher Project returns the first Tuesday of next month. Remember, this is part two of a two-part interview. The first part aired on December 5th. You can find it on Radio Catskills Archive at WJFFRadio.org or wherever you get your local edition podcast from. I'm Jason Dole. I'll be back tomorrow night. We'll have a brand new interview with Lissa Harris of the Empire of Dirt blog talking about climate change in the year that was. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up at 7 tonight, we have Mr. Kusar Grace in the Music Emporium. But first, it's The Daily. This is Radio Catskill. Radio Catskill supporters include Wayne Memorial Hospital, a certified primary stroke center and a level four trauma center. Wayne Memorial now offers seven physician specialties, including urology and gastroenterology on its Honesdale, Pennsylvania campus. More information at WMH.org. And from the River Reporter newspaper, riverreporter.com and 